Waves in the Finiverse. But we all understand Bitcoin is not digital gold today. It's going to someday be digital gold, but today Bitcoin is a risk asset, right? It's, it's, it fluctuates a lot. It's not like gold. Gold is much more stable than Bitcoin is. The idea is that in five years, in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, who knows how long it'll take, Bitcoin will eventually become a digital gold. The thing about crypto that, that makes it unique relative to a lot of other innovations is that crypto has been global from day one. I mean, there's no such thing as a non-regulatable asset. There's always the ability for regulators to step in and basically say what they believe the ground rules are. Now, that doesn't mean that people will follow those regulations. You know, one of the things about crypto is not that it can't be regulated, but that the power relationship between regulators and individuals is very different than it is for many other technologies. Most human beings have the instinct that they want to control variants. They want to control randomness. They want to minimize variants as much as possible. I have very mixed feelings about DAOs. I think DAOs are one of the concepts that became very overhyped in 2021 and is now going through a bit of a trough of disillusionment. From crypto winter to DAOs, to NFTs in the metaverse, to quite frankly, all things fintech. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse, a podcast brought to you by Finiverse, the official appointed organizers of Hong Kong Fintech Week and D3 Bahamas. This is our first episode in a new series where each week we'll be talking to those making ripples, waves, and tsunamis in finance, fintech, Web3, and crypto from across the world. I'm Walter Jennings, and I'll be host as together we take a deep dive into where this industry is heading in 2023 and beyond. We're launching this podcast just days away from two major industry events here in Asia Pacific, Hong Kong Fintech Week and Singapore Fintech Festival. For a one-week special, we'll be there at these shows, bringing you daily updates with some of the top speakers from across Asia and around the world. But to kick it off this week, I have a very special guest for you you. Let's get started. From professional poker player to software engineer at Airbnb, today's guest in the Finiverse bet against the house and won. His belief in crypto from its early origins has made him a firm believer investing in some of the industry's biggest names, such as Coinbase, BitGo, Avalanche, just to name a few. He's managing partner at Dragonfly Capital with a focus on seed stage and early stage investment in companies in the crypto sector. Investments that today tally into the billions of dollars. So someone you might be interested in talking to about your next startup idea, Harib Kareshi, welcome to the Finiverse. Dragonfly Capital, of whom you're managing partner, uh, had a very successful start in 2022 with a 650 million US dollar capital raise in April. Oh, how would you characterize the changes in the market the last six months? So it's been a very tumultuous six months for crypto. I mean, for almost all asset classes, it's been a tumultuous six months. So you know, since, since the beginning of, of 2022, we've seen a lot of macro instability around the world. We've seen a rallying dollar. We've seen inflation numbers that are you know, kind of unprecedented within the last 30, 40 years. And all of that has caused markets to get absolutely roiled, especially risk assets. And among risk assets, crypto is among the riskiest of the risk assets. And so largely what you've seen since the beginning of this year is you've seen a, a massive spike in correlation between crypto and the NASDAQ. And you know, typically crypto and you know, most stocks tend to be very uncorrelated. That correlation increased after COVID and it has absolutely spiked since November when we saw the first inflation print. Um, and so that, that's kind of been the story of the last six months is that you've seen 
this this whole exuberance, whether it be in you know uh, startup multiples or you know pre product market fit companies that are you know telling big tech stories um, to you know things like crypto and Web three, all of these things have had their ma- massive slashes in valuation, and of course there's the, the the incredible rallying of the dollar in light of the the macroeconomic environment that we're in. So it's been it's been a lot of pain in in the crypto markets. Hasib, you mentioned the correlation between digital and the Nasdaq. Um, in the past, uh, when the market stock markets moved one way, um, crypto sometimes moved the other. Uh, is what are the forces driving that kind of linkage now? Where when the market goes down, crypto goes down. Is this the increase in institutional investors, or is it just a, a recognition that this is yet another asset class? It's a few things. Um, so, so one of them, of course, is that before 2020, crypto didn't really have very much institutional holder base. So if you look at, uh, you remember when Paul Tudor Jones first started buying Bitcoin, he wrote this big piece, I think, in the summer of 2020, talking about how this was going to be the asset that was the hedge against monetary inflation, right? At the time, he was looking at historical data for Bitcoin and seeing, showing how Bitcoin was uncorrelated from any other asset class. And that was a lot of the initial excitement about putting Bitcoin into a portfolio was that Bitcoin was going to be uncorrelated from any other asset. Um, now, of course, this, this kind of flies in the face of this idea that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, right? Because if you are uncorrelated with other assets, then clearly you're not a hedge. You're just uncorrelated. A, a hedge is something that's anti-correlated. Um, and so from the beginning, this idea that this could be both uncorrelated from other assets and be a good hedge was kind of nonsensical, right? It can't be both. Um, what we've seen is that since 2020, when institutions started really coming in to, to buying crypto assets, uh, that's when we saw the correlation first start to increase. And that correlation, the, a very simple way to attribute that correlation is one, a lot of this correlation is coming from common ownership. If you are an institution and you own crypto and you also own the NASDAQ, well, both of those two things are risky assets within the perspective of, a, of an institution. So if you want to add risk, you want to take more risk, then you're going to buy crypto and you're going to buy the NASDAQ. If you want to cut risk, you're going to sell crypto and you're going to sell the NASDAQ, right? So you're going to force correlation between these two assets because of the way your risk models bucket them together in the same risk profile. So that is going to cause some correlation. But most of the really crazy correlation between crypto and the NASDAQ started after November last year. And the reason why that's happening in large part is not because you know, crypto is responding to the NASDAQ because crypto cares about corporate earnings, right? Obviously, it doesn't. Um, crypto doesn't intrinsically care about, you know, uh, the unemployment rate, right? It, it, it really doesn't. Uh, the thing that's happening is that there's a common cause to both the fluctuation in the NASDAQ and the fluctuation in the price of Bitcoin, and that is interest rates. Interest rates absolutely affect the value of something like Bitcoin. Now, why? Does, is, is, is that not incoherent that Bitcoin, supposed to be this untethered, non-sovereign currency, is being affected by you know, the, the, the discount rate on dollars, right? Like, what, How does that make any sense? Well, the answer is that the interest rate on dollars, you can think of as the risk-free rate. Okay? This is the amount you'll get paid for taking zero risk. And if you are taking on a lot of risk or you are doing something that's going to pay out far in the future, which is ultimately taking on a form of risk, then you need to get paid more. You need, to, you need to have a higher reward in order for you to take on more risk. So you can think about Bitcoin, like, you know, we talk about Bitcoin as though Bitcoin is digital gold. But we all understand Bitcoin is not digital gold today. It's going to someday be digital gold. But today, Bitcoin is a risk asset, right? It's, it's, it fluctuates a lot. It's not like gold. Gold is much more stable than Bitcoin is. The idea is that in five years, in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, who knows how long it'll take, Bitcoin will eventually become a digital gold. 
But how long is that? Is that five years? Is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? Uh, if the interest rate on money is 25 basis points or 20 basis points, then it doesn't really matter how long it's going to take. But if the interest rate is basically 4% or 5%, then suddenly it really matters. Is this going to take five years? Is it going to take 10 years? Is it going to take 20 years? And any perception that actually that, that the date on which this vision is going to get realized changes is going to massively affect its value. And so that's why interest rates really matter for something like crypto, because crypto is a bet on the future. Anything that is a bet on the future is subject to interest rates. That's why crypto has, since uh, November, when interest rates really started spiking um, and, and the volatility around the expectations of what the Fed is going to do started uh, massively increasing, that's what's caused an enormous amount of volatility and effects on the absolute price level for Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and everything in, in the crypto landscape. And Hasib, how are you adjusting your approach to investments in light of the market volatility? So look, we're, we're venture capitalists, which means that you know, our investment time horizon is over many years. So look, if you're, if you're looking at something, you know, what, what is this asking to be worth in one year or two years, then what happens in this interest rate cycle is everything. You basically have to make a macro prediction. But if you're going to exit this position in five years, then, well, okay, in five years, it's going to be friggin', it's going to be five years from now, right? We're going to be way past this current cycle. And probably there's going to be some return to the norm, whether it's with inflation rates or with interest rates, five years from now. And so really, if you're thinking on the timescales that we're thinking about, um, then really what matters is just the secular trends that undergird all of this stuff that are, are going to be unabated regardless of what happens in a short-term macro cycle. So the question of what is the future of money? What's going to happen with NFTs? What's going to happen with culture? What's going to happen with you know, adoption of this technology around the world? Those are the questions we're trying to answer. What the macro cycle really does for us is it changes the entrance price, but it doesn't by any means change the exit price. And that's why you know, if you're looking at later stage investments, maybe it really matters thinking about where your entrance price comes in. Um, but if you're looking at early stage investments, very often, entrance price doesn't, doesn't make that much of a difference compared to what a potential exit can be. It's mostly about picking the right things and understanding what trends are likely to come to fruition rather than trying to hyper-optimize around, okay, this should, this should be priced here, this should be priced there. Um, it's more about picking the right deals than it is about timing the market. Escape Crypto Winter. Join Web3 and fintech leaders at D3 Bahamas on Paradise Island in the Bahamas from the 24th to the 26th of January. Hasib, I'm going to ask you to do something you've asked many a startup to do. Uh, can you give me your elevator pitch? And we're on the fifth floor. So, uh, and the elevator is going down. What's true? Who's Dragonfly Capital? Yeah. So Dragonfly, so we're a global crypto fund. We invest into startups, tokens, uh, exchanges, brokerages, custodians, everything under the sun within crypto. We've done it over the last uh, four, four to five years. Um, we're, we're one of the dominant funds in the space, especially in Asia. I assume we're in, in Elevator in Hong Kong right now. So in Asia, we are the dominant fund. We've, we've very seldom lost any deals in Asia. Uh, we've invested in four of the five unicorns that have come out of Asia in the last, uh, in the last four years. And um, we like to partner with entrepreneurs very early, work with them on their technology, their go-to-market, their partnerships, their branding, their PR. Ground floor, mate. We've made it. Thank you very much. And in Hong Kong, you've always got someone pressing the closed door button. Uh, <laughs> the, your investments give you a great perspective on the vagaries of the world market. Uh, where are you seeing some of the more 
interesting developments in Web3 and the technologies? Which parts of the world uh, excite you at the moment? The thing about crypto that, that makes it unique relative to a lot of other innovations is that crypto has been global from day one. The nature of the technology makes it so that it is, it is from the moment of its inception or invention, it permeates the entire world. And anybody in any market who wants to take advantage of what's being created in crypto can, can easily leverage it and start using it every single day. And of course, in crypto, we don't often have very good data on who or where is this stuff being used because on the blockchain, everybody's just an address. So there, there's no Venezuelan addresses. There are no you know, uh, American addresses. There are no Chinese addresses. They're just addresses. And so there are some proxies that we can use to try to get a sense of where the center of gravity is or like get a kind of vague heat map of where things are going on. It's a lot easier to do on the centralized company side. So like if you're an exchange, if you're a brokerage, it's very easy to tell where people are coming from. Uh, but if you're, if you're looking at adoption directly on the blockchain, which is where we spend a lot of our time, um, oftentimes it's very difficult to tell. So the, the, so the, the rough answer is that we don't know. The more specific answer is that I think there are certain sectors, certain parts of the world that I think are are going to be more aggressive in adopting blockchain technology. Um, in many ways, the the places that are actually getting the most battered by macro and the places where there's the most volatility with respect to their own currencies are places where they're going to have more demand to potentially you know get away from their from the from the constraints of their own local economy and their own local currency and basically enter into this de facto globalized digitized economy that is you know, uh, the, the on-chain economy. So whether that be adopting stable coins, whether it be finding other, um, other ways to interact with this decentralized financial system, um, I expect it's going to be happening in places like in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in, um, you know, in, in parts of the Middle East, where there has been this, this, um, this chaos that has been brought into place by the global macro instability that we're seeing today. There has been a push in countries to improve regulatory oversight of digital assets. And I'm wondering if you're seeing any kind of outstanding or concerning parts of the world in terms of their approach to regulation. This was supposed to be the non-regulated asset, and it's suddenly in a, in a, in a gray area at the moment. I mean, there's no such thing as a non-regulatable asset. There's always the ability for regulators to step in and basically say what they believe the ground rules are. Now, that doesn't mean that people will follow those regulations. And you know, one of the things about crypto is not that it can't be regulated, but that the, 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 the power relationship between regulators and individuals is very different than it is for many other technologies. And so you know, you can, you can, uh, one of the things I, I like to point out, it was not regulation that ended up killing the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing economy. Um, actually, you know, actually, even still today, one of the largest links of upload in the world is people using BitTorrent. Uh, in Europe, in, in EMEA, in Africa, BitTorrent is still massive, massive, massive way that content ends up getting distributed to users. The reality is that the reason why, in, at least in the US, which is you know, where I spend most of my time, uh, the reason why the uh, people shifted their primary music consumption from peer-to-peer -peer, uh, you know, illegal file sharing to things like Spotify and iTunes was UX, was convenience, was people coming up and finding better solutions. It was, it was not through regulation. It was not through the RIAA going out and suing individual teenagers who were downloading this stuff. The same thing feels to me like the story of crypto is that 
you can ban crypto, you can regulate crypto, you can say you're not allowed to touch this thing or that thing or whatever. But practically speaking, these protocols are designed in such a way that it's very difficult to stop them at, at, at an individual level, right? You can stop them at an institutional level. You can say that, okay, Coinbase, you're not allowed to touch you know, this product. You're not allowed to offer staking as a service. You're not allowed to offer lending as a service. You're not allowed to offer you know, this particular token. But if, if somebody is so motivated, they can always find their way online and you know, from anywhere in the world, as long as you have a mobile phone that's connected to the internet, you can go interact with the blockchain. You can interact with DeFi. You can buy any token you want, so long as it's listed anywhere in the world. Um, and this is going to change things. It is absolutely going to affect the way that we think about the relationship between financial regulators and the markets that underlie them. Now, in, in the long run, I think regulators are coming to understand this. The places where I think regulators have been the most hard-headed is in, generally speaking, countries where they're very reliant on capital controls, and especially the most stringent forms of capital controls, right? So you see it, obviously, in China, which has banned crypto outright. You see it in India, which has been very inimical to crypto. You see it in places like Venezuela. You see it in places like Iran. These are places where there's such strong reliance on capital controls that there's really, from the perspective of the regulators slash governments in place, there's just no choice but to rail against crypto. And and very often, you know, with with a, a very slight tone of irony, uh, these are often the places where there's actually the most demand for crypto for obvious reasons, right? Um, and so th this has always been the tension in crypto. The places where people most don't want crypto to exist, or I should say governments don't want crypto to exist, is also where citizens do want crypto to exist. And that tension is going to continue to play out over this next decade. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3, and beyond. Earlier in your life, you were a professional poker player. Um, and how did that set you up to be a VC investor in the crypto field? It's a good question. Uh, it was definitely not a straight line from being a poker player to becoming an investor, but there, there are a lot of commonalities. So for one, being a poker player, you learn a lot about risk. You learn a lot about how to manage risk, also how to experientially understand risk. Um, one of the things that you'll notice in crypto, the difference between uh, good crypto investors and bad crypto investors, is that bad crypto investors tend to only want to invest in deals that have very low risk profile. So they think to themselves, you know what, I, yeah, I like crypto, I like Web3, I feel like there's something happening here, but investing in the tokens or investing to exchange, that's so dangerous, like I don't really know what the risk profile might look like. So instead, I'm going to find like some SaaS company that offers a very easy to underwrite product. It's like kind of, you know, crypto in name only, uh, or just sort of adjacent or correlated to the crypto market. And I'm going to invest in this and that, that feels much more doable for me. It feels much more aligned with my risk appetite. These investors, there are a lot of investors who basically take that approach to investing into Web3. And um, basically, I feel like it's the worst of both worlds, where you're getting the risk of the crypto industry, because if crypto goes into a secular decline, you know, the, obviously, these companies' revenues are going to struggle, but um, you don't get any of the reward. So if crypto goes gangbusters, um, you know, some regular SaaS company is not going to appreciate by 1,000x, but, you know, there are other assets in crypto may well do that. So the, it, it's the exact opposite of the way that you want to be investing in a category like this. Um, that's one thing that poker teaches you is it teaches you how to calibrate on risk and when it makes sense from an expected value perspective to load up on risk and to go make a risky bet because the expected value is there. Um, but you know, we, we, one thing I always like to say when I was a poker player is that most human beings have the instinct that they want to control variance. They want to control randomness. 
They want to minimize variance as much as possible. There are good reasons to do that. Obviously, at a portfolio construction level, you absolutely want to do that. It's it's, to the benefit, depending on the exact way that you're planning your overall portfolio goals. But uh, if you're at a poker table and you're trying to control your variance, then I'm going to murder you. I'm going to destroy you. Because if you're trying to control your variance, that means that if I push up your variance, you are going to fold out of every single hand. And so I know exactly how to exploit somebody that is not willing to take variance. So if, if, now, if you're, if you're willing to go you know, to the mat with me and you're willing to take that variance, I got to find a different way to attack you. But anybody who I see at a poker table who is trying to control their variance, I know exactly what to do to beat them. And I think the same thing is largely true in investing. Sometimes you have to take the variance. And that's where the returns are. That's where you have to go. Okay. And Hasib, have you uh, been in front of uh, potential companies to invest in and had trouble keeping your poker face? You've seen some amazing opportunities. <laughs> I, I, I have, and I've, I've passed on more amazing opportunities than I've done. So it's been, um, it's, it's, it's been a harrowing experience. Look, I think as an investor, uh, you know, the notion of a of, of, of poker face, I think people have this idea that investing is very adversarial. Um, I think it's generally not true. Uh, most of the time, actually, the best way to win a deal is to really build trust and transparency with an entrepreneur. There are times when you do get into zero-sum battles about, okay, this term or that term or whatever. But for the most part, if you're trying to win a deal, and it's an important deal, meaning that other people are trying to win it too, the way that you're going to win the deal is not by you know, stonewalling your opponent and you know, trying to exert dominance over them. The way that you're going to win a deal is by convincing them that you're on their side and showing them demonstrating to them the value that you're going to provide by partnering with them and that you believe in what they believe in. Um, if you can't do that, and entrepreneurs, good entrepreneurs, can sniff out bullshit from a mile away, um, if you can't do that, then you're probably not going to win that deal. Steve, I have a question for you I've been exploring with a few folks. Um, the promise of Web3 is decentralization and lack of uh, ownership by the company or the man. Um, and yet we see VCs now uh, buying up and investing in the, the chains and the companies. How is this not different from an uh, AWS and Microsoft? It's a, it's a reasonable uh, challenge. To what's what's happening in crypto? Um, there was there was a tweet a, a long time ago, back when, back in the early days when um, crypto was much smaller. It was somebody who was asking, "I have a tough time believing that the future of money is going to be one third owned by A16Z and Polychain." I understand the thrust of that challenge. And I think it's a correct one. W- what I would say in in response to this is that you know, one for the most part, when investors are buying up some of these tokens, so the, the first thing to understand is that let's say that you you have a token that has no presale. There, there's at no point do they sell any tokens to investors. And of course, there have been many things like this. They used to be called fair launches, although that term has fallen a bit out of popularity. But there have been many coins where they just create the coin, they launch it, and whoever owns it, owns it. Um, of course, when that happens, much in the same way as they do in almost any financial market, uh, there ends up being some concentration of just you know very wealthy actors that decide, hey, I want to own a lot of this thing. And they go on the open market and they buy it. When that happens, there's a natural kind of um, diffusion process where the tokens end up in the hands of the people who most want them. And very often, the people who most want them are very well capitalized, and they might want a lot of these tokens. And so I don't think the right way to think about what crypto does is that crypto is a way of you know, lowering the Gini coefficient for some asset. There's no mechanism within crypto, crypto to do that, and it doesn't purport to do that. Uh, so you know, when, when investors uh, like Dragonfly or A16Z or Paradigm or whoever 
uh, when they end up coming into a, a, a token project from the very early days and putting in some money, investing in order to receive some tokens. So one thing to understand is that most of the time, the company themselves or the, the issuer of the tokens themselves, they will make sure that there's not too much concentration of the token in any single actor. So if you have a lot of actors, right, let's say there's, you know, six, seven VCs that are in a round. And so, you know, there might be like something like 20% of the token supply is owned by six or seven VCs. Okay, well, that's very often the case, even in a fair launch, that six, seven actors own something like 20% of the supply, if not even more concentration than that. But then second, like we're all different people. And the, the important thing that's happening is that uh, it's not that VCs as a category only have this much of a token. VCs are also actors. We're not all in cahoots with each other. Uh, and so if I disagree with Paradigm or Polychain disagrees with us, we are going to vote in a different direction. We're going to think in a different way. We're going to make different choices about the way in which we participate in the governance of, of this protocol. So that would be my answer to that particular thrust. I and mean, look, if you have a protocol where a single VC owns 20% of the token supply, that's crazy. You know, we, we have a pretty hard and fast rule that we never get anywhere near that on any token that we own. And the same is true of most uh, high quality VCs that I've seen in the space. Okay, Hasim. Um, look, uh, Dragonfly Capital works to a five-year time horizon for its investment or longer. Uh, which are the sectors that right now represent the greatest opportunity for you? That's always hard to say. If I knew that, I would be a lot better at this job than I am. Uh, I, I would say that, look, maybe a way to reframe the question in a way that I think I can give you more purchase on it is that um, I think right now, anytime that you're in a bear market, like we certainly are today, um, generally speaking, the best investments are the ones that solve the problems that were exposed during the last bull run. And so, okay, what were the problems that were exposed in the last bull run? Um, it seems pretty clear that there's a lot of problems with blockchains around scalability, around interoperability, around usability, around privacy, around identity. They're, they're, they're these basic core problems that we've known about for a very long time that came to a head over 2021 and in 2020 um, that showed us, hey, this stuff is still not ready yet. It's not ready for prime time. We, we can't really scale to hundreds of millions of users, uh, much less tens of millions of users on any single blockchain. Uh, until we address some of these underlying problems. So over the next two to three years, that's what I'm really looking at is, okay, there's going to be another bull market at some point. When we get there, what are the big problems that need to get solved before we we, we get to that uh, next phase of the crypto market cycle? Um, that's the kind of thing that I want to be investing in now that tees us up for the next bull run. Uh, Hasib, I know there are dozens, if not hundreds of companies trying to get your attention. Uh, and what are some of the more effective ways companies have brought themselves to Dragonfly Capital? And, and you know, not a firm you might have identified, but someone who identified you as a want to have in our uh, shareholder books. Generally speaking, you know, as an investor, we're constantly being, you know, every investor that's worth their salt is constantly being inundated. And so in order to rise above the froth, you need to be able to get our attention. And uh, so the easiest way to do that is to get a warm intro. So somebody we've worked with, somebody we already have a relationship with who can vouch for you and say, you know, this person, uh, this person's a real deal. This startup is a real deal. Uh, that's going to get you a lot of the way to just getting on our, uh, you know, getting top of mind for us. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, a lot of our, a lot of the deals that we do are not inbound, but outbound. So if you are just out there, you know, telling your story, shipping software, getting users, building cool stuff, um, we're probably going to notice because we pay a lot of attention to what's going on on the kind of, you know, the, this, the stage of crypto, which tends to be Twitter and 
you know, WeChat and these other platforms where these kinds of things make the rounds. So if you are, uh, if you're doing cool stuff, there's a good chance that we're going to find you. Um, and so just keep being public, keep being loud, keep making cool things. And uh, VCs are going to find you if you're doing your job as a founder. Hasib, um, one of the um, technologies or approaches in Web3 that has gained greater prominence in the last year has been the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Uh, do you see DAOs continuing as in their niche, performing their role, or do you uh, eventually see greater acceptance and integration of these because they represent a fairly new form of corporate governance? I have very mixed feelings about DAOs. I think DAOs are one of the concepts that became very overhyped in 2021 and is now going through a bit of a trough of disillusionment. Um, so there's been a big retracement in, in a lot of DAO activity. Part of it, of course, just the broader decline in crypto prices, which means that there are a lot fewer well-capitalized DAOs. Um, but just organic DAO activity has, has, has gone down. I don't think the concept of a DAO is going anywhere. It's very clear this is a this is a concept that is here to stay and taps into something very very important about human organization in a digital first world. Um, but you know we've seen, for example, with the with the Uki DAO charge that was brought by the CFTC that DAOs are also not impenetrable. And if you are if you are participating in a DAO that is performing some kind of illegal activity, uh, DAOs are not magic. They are not some kind of you know shield that that prevents you from any kind of legal liability. Um, and there's a lot of innovation going on on the legal side of how to create DAOs that have some kind of liability shield that can pr protect the underlying members from uh, you know, full liability for everything that's happening at the DAO level. There's a lot of big questions that I think are, have yet to be resolved. And I think a lot of DAO governance has also been very bad. Uh, and we've seen you know, a lot of debacles, whether it be from Sushi to Fei to you know, uh, others that have really fumbled over the last year and shown that DAOs, again, they're not magic. The, the, the difficulty of creating you know, human projects that are well-run, well-governed, well-thought-through, and that solve real problems remains as difficult as it was before the concept of a DAO. A DAO is a particular structure slash wrapper or set of concepts that can help organize the, the collective activity of individuals on, on the internet. But the, the difficulty of doing that in, in a sound and just way is as difficult as it was you know, two years ago. So uh, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in figuring out what is the right way to govern these things going forward, as well as the right way to legally structure them such that they do give one the, the basket of legal protections and expectations that they have going into the concept of a DAO. Now, Hasib, having worked myself for a few years at a regulated digital asset exchange, um, there had been much talk over the last two years over the promise of tokenization or security token offerings, uh, which have been likened to um, an IPO on Web3. What is the promise or barriers for STO adoption? Because you know we're not, just not seeing the deal flow anticipated. To be clear, from inception, I have been bearish on the STO story. And at Dragonfly, we, we, we have not invested into, um, I don't think we've invested any STO platforms. The primary security tokens that have really actually garnered much adoption on chain have been uh, security tokens that plug into DeFi and do interesting things, such as, for example, you know, Maker, uh, MakerDAO, which is the largest on-chain stablecoin, going out, taking its reserves and using it to buy securities in order to earn yield on their underlying uh, collateral. So, you know, my, my view basically on security tokens is that the problem with security tokens is that they don't uh, quite capture the thing that makes blockchain so powerful in that they're not permissionless, they're not self-sovereign, they don't exist purely in the blockchain internet native space. They, they also don't intrinsically plug into the systems that already exist within traditional finance, right? So 
in a world where, uh, okay, you have this security token that's on chain, presumably it's tokenized, but it's still actually sitting on the, you know, at the DTCC, it's still got T plus two settlement because the underlying person who's holding it, you know, doesn't actually settle it in real time, even though the claims on the blockchain are moving around in real time. When you have this incongruence between the real thing and the representation of the thing, uh, that's where you lose a lot of the advantages of blockchain. Blockchains are at their best when the thing that they're governing is entirely digital and entirely lives on a digital ledger. So whether it be a digital good, whether it be an NFT, whether it be you know hard drive space, whether it be mining power, whether, whatever, all these things are purely digital assets and a purely digital asset can be governed effectively purely in a blockchain system. The moment you try to pull in things from the real world that don't have their system of record actually live on the blockchain, then you start getting a lot more complexity and the advantages of blockchain start to really get watered down. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't exist or that they can't exist. They can, but it requires a tremendous amount more coordination and a tremendous amount more integration in order for that to work. If the exchanges or if the um, you know the brokers or the custodians that actually hold the underlying stocks that are being tokenized are not playing ball or are not totally integrating the blockchain as being the, the dominant system of record for where these things are and what they're uh, how they're being held, then you're just going to get a very, very painful experience, which is the way that STOs largely feel today. I want to ask a question, uh, Dragonfly. Uh, how did the name come about? Is this your spirit animal? <laughs> so uh, there's actually, there's a, there's a very famous poem by an um, ancient Chinese poet uh, about the dragonfly. The dragonfly, traditionally, it represents the beginning of spring. Because the dragonfly is the first animal that ends up uh, coming out and exploring the spring. Um, the other thing about the dragonfly is that it's actually the animal that has the highest hunting success rate. And so these two elements of dragonfly, dragonfly first as a pioneer of a new season, of a new world, uh, when coming out of winter. And then second, uh, as a dragonfly being a very, very skillful hunter. Those two things are, I think, the essence of what we do at Dragonfly. So that's why we chose the name. On your webpage, now I'm in uh, Web3 Marketing and, um, you know, I love the little homage to 80s gaming that was the opening of your webpage, but then you land pretty quickly on uh, a fairly radical design that in uh, one page summarizes your business plan. And as you scroll down, we see a few things like, you know, global from day one, which you explained. But you say technology is culture, and uh, I'd like to challenge you on that. How is technology culture? When we say technology is culture, what we mean is that one of the things Web3 has done is created this interplay between, you know, in the early days of, of, of crypto and blockchain, um, technology, people thought about blockchain and Bitcoin as fundamentally these things, uh, these, these particular innovations that were used as products. And one of the things that's become clear is that as technology evolves, technology ends up itself instantiating cultural change. So that was true, of course, of Facebook and social media and TikTok and all these things that have massively changed the way our culture operates. Um, the same thing has started to become true within Web3. The idea that it's not just a technological change that, okay, you use a different product, you use a different way to settle money, you use a different way to interact with financial services. Uh, it's more than that. It's this idea that, hey, we want to actually approach the world in a different way. This idea that things should be decentralized and we should not have too much power concentrated into individual companies or individual people. The idea that um, you know, artists should be getting compensated for their work in a very different way than in the traditional models where you know, ultimately it's the distributors, it's the middlemen, it's the, it's the systems that be and the cultures that preexisted and predated you that have the real power and the real control. 
Um, now we're giving that power back to individuals. All this stuff at the end of the day is the interplay between technology and culture. And as technologies mature and become more robust and become more adopted, inevitably they end up having an impact on how people think about the way the world ought to be structured. That's exactly the same thing that happened with Web 2, and it's now beginning to happen with Web 3. Now, Hasib, you've been a great guest, and I'd like to grant you a wish. Uh, let's clear up the most common misconception people have about you or your fund. You know, what is the refrain or the comment or the insight that you just would love to get rid of? I guess, you know, one, the, the, some people perceive us to be an Asia fund because of the fact that we have such a large presence in Asia and we've done so many deals there. We, we're very careful to tell people that we're a global fund. And when I say a global fund, what we mean is that we, you know, today we have 50 plus people around the world in Singapore, Hong Kong, US, Western Europe. Um, I'm myself based in the US most of the time. And the, our approach to investing in crypto is that we invest everywhere. We don't invest in any particular geography. We don't try to index. We don't have a basket of Asia stuff, a basket of US stuff, and we kind of mix and match. Uh, we try to do the best deals from anywhere in the world. And our presence in Asia, as well as our presence in the US, we see as complementary to that underlying project. So that, to me, is probably the biggest thing that doesn't happen that often anymore. It happened a lot more in the early days of Dragonfly. Um, these days, I think people see us in so many deals in the Western market that um, some people don't even know how much presence in Asia we have. So I feel like the pendulum has gone both ways as uh, we've matured as, as, a, as a platform. Hasib, we ask each guest if they could take one song with them into the Finiverse that would kind of be the soundtrack of their life. Is there any music that comes to mind that you'd... Uh, want to have following you. I, I guess it'd have to be Queen. If I could take a Queen album with me into the Finiverse, I feel like that'd be, that, that would suit my, uh, my life fairly well. It, it both has the drama and the energy and the iconoclasm that I think uh, I'd want to be carrying with me into the Finiverse. And is, is there um, any track that gets you out on the dance floor before any of the others? Uh, any one favorite? Somebody to Love. That's the name of the song. Somebody to Love. It's a fantastic, fantastic song by Queen. in the Finiverse. Okay, and um, uh, Hasib, you've started your education at University of Texas in Austin with a BA in philosophy. Um, how did that set you up to be a great VC investor? It didn't, actually. Uh, it <laughs> was completely orthogonal <laughs> to anything I've done in the rest of my life. Um, so actually, in school, I studied English and philosophy. So okay. even more useless uh, when it comes to actually getting anything done. I was French world. and economics, but uh, yes. Yeah, so yeah, well, I, the other half of that seems to have served you. Uh, I, I, I was, you know, kind of purely um, uh, head in the clouds when I was in my academic, uh, my academic life. But, you know, coming into investing, I would say that the, philosophy, I think, to an extent has helped me in being structured in my thinking. And being able to very clearly lay out an argument and understand its weaknesses, um, and then on the English side, I do a lot of writing, and I think that that has helped me in in being able to communicate and express myself in an industry where there really has been, at least historically, there's been a dearth of good writers and people who can actually explain all the really complex things that are going on in this space. So 
you know, nothing is ever really wasted. And although I, I joke that my education was kind of worthless, in reality, it's given me advantages that many other people in the space uh, don't have. No, I see. We could have a whole show just dedicated to the advantages of a uh, of a liberal arts degree versus uh, specific uh, other opportunities that are available. Well, Hasib, thank you very much. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.